Good morning, church. Um, this morning, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 8 again. This is part two of last week's teaching. If you haven't listened to last week, hit pause. That's kind of weird that I can say this right now, but hit pause, go back and listen. This is uh, definitely part two. Like They, they go together. This is really important that you, you get the first, uh, the first part. Um, I'm going to start in verse 27 in Mark chapter 8 and then read down to verse 37, and uh, then I'll pray for our time this morning. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is uh, the words of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, as we get into this text, that I, th I would imagine those of us that have been a part of the church and following you for a while are very familiar with this text. But I, get, I think we should all come to it, and I come to it even right now, saying, um, Lord, we see, but help us see. We see, but we probably don't see clearly. We, we probably see what's going on in this text, but we don't really see what's going on in this text. So would you show us? We see you, Jesus, but there are so many ways that we don't see you clearly. So would you open our eyes so that we could? Would you touch our eyes? Would you touch our perception and our understanding of the ways that we do see you and incorrectly and go about healing and setting that right? I submit all of my capacities to you, and I pray that you would anoint me to teach in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In my office... Um, my, my office at, at, at church, I have uh, this photo. And it's not hung on the wall or anything, it's just like kind of on the ground, uh, of Billy Graham and Johnny Cash. It's right here, this is, this is my photo. It's black and white photo. Um, they're both standing there with their, kind of their chest puffed out, uh, their shoulders back. Johnny Cash has like his hands and fists and kind of tucked into his vest. And uh, both of them are staring at the camera with these like steely eyes and square jaws. And I like this photo because it's kind of BA. I mean, it's, it's kind of rad. I mean, you got an evangelist from a generation ago, Billy Graham, and an outlaw country music singer, Johnny Cash, both posing together right before an evangelistic crusade. Now, what I don't often realize is that how a photo like that can actually subconsciously shape my idea and vision of who Jesus is and what discipleship to Jesus means. See, for most of us, we get our vision of Jesus from somewhere. 
And that somewhere is not often simply just the Bible. Our vision of Jesus comes from heroes and mentors and books and movies and social media and parents and the plain old United States of America and its very potent Christian nationalism. And all of that will quite often shape our idea and our expectations of Jesus. See, what I like about this photo is that it is BA, but what can be dangerous about a photo like this is that it subconsciously shapes my idea of Jesus and my discipleship to him, meaning I can start to believe that Jesus himself is BA. And to follow him, I need to be a little like this. See, this is kind of what it does, right? It's like, look at the evangelist and an and outlaw country music to bind together, come together and do this evangelistic crusade. That's, and I can kind of, in my mind, get the, the, what seeps into my head is like, Jesus is kind of like that. He's kind of steely eyes and, and broad shoulder and like just kind of machismo. He's a man. And I'm not saying this as, um, as a joke at all. I'm not saying this to bash on them at all. I'm being completely serious here. Through pictures and images and speeches and stories, we can start to believe that Jesus is more like a gun-carrying American man who's really, at, really good at business and providing for his family and having a love for country. We can do that. That can easily slip into our Christianity. Or through a different set of pictures and images and speeches and stories, we can start to believe that Jesus is more like a feminist disruptor who loves taking on the establishment of anything or any people in power and just wants everyone to love themselves and be loved in return. See, you have an image of Jesus. You live out of an image of Jesus. And with that image of Jesus, you have expectations of Jesus. You can't get around this. I can't get around this. But we can. If we're open and a little lucky, we can get confronted by the real Jesus. And at that place, we, can, we have to let our expectations of Jesus and our images of who we think he is die. That's exactly what's going on in our text today. If you remember from last week, this account of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi comes directly after the healing of the, the blind man in stages. Remember that? Where he can see, where Jesus touches his eyes and he spits on his eyes and he, he can see, but he can't really see. Until Jesus touches him again and he can see everything clearly. What this text is trying to show us is that when we read a story like, th like that, like the, the healing of the man, and then this story, is that all Jesus' disciples are in a way like that. There are moments and times in our lives where we see Jesus, but we don't see Jesus. Where we have ideas and pictures and images and expectations of Jesus, but not the right ones. We see him, and we see that he is Lord, but we don't see what it means that Jesus is Lord. See, this scene, this scene that we read this morning takes place in a, in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which, is, which held great significance in Jesus' time. <clears throat> it's a place that was a, a sort of a, like an like a Israeli pantheon. It was a pantheon in Israel, basically, of all the gods of the ancient world. And... In Jewish tradition, the place was also a site of a lot of messianic hope. So it had kind of this pagan site where Caesarea Philippi was the center of all of this, like a pantheon of different gods that people worshiped. But also in Jewish tradition, it was like the, the site and the center of a lot of messianic hope. And it was fitting for Jesus 
to do what he was about to do in this location. When they get to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? What, what are people saying about me? And, and this is a really great question that Jesus asked his disciples. What do people think of me? I mean, from time to time, Jesus throughout history, and, and actually until like right now, is almost everyone who knows anything about religion or spirituality has some kind of opinion of Jesus. History literally turns on Jesus's life, BC to AD or BCE to CE, it still turns on Christ. And there's that very famous quote from H.G. Uh, Wells where he says, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably at the, the, the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And what people say about Jesus can range from he's a good teacher, to he's a great prophet, to he was revolutionary, to he was a holy person. The disciples answer Jesus by using the categories of their day to describe someone who ranks up there as one of the greatest figures in human history. They say this to Jesus, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Now, from a human perspective, the people of Jesus' day to H.G. Wells were all correct. Jesus was and is one of the greatest figures to ever live in human history. That hasn't changed. I mean, for the, for the majority of like what people are saying about Jesus, a majority of people in the world would say Jesus is a great, if not the central human figure of our history. But of course, Jesus is after something more than simply what are people saying about me? He, does, he says this next. He says, what do you say about me? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, if you know anything about Jesus, you'll know that Jesus doesn't stay too long on the periphery. He presses himself inward to often the deepest and most personal and intimate places of our lives. So, of course, this is what wasn't going to stay in the periphery. What do people say that I am? Jesus was always going to go after the heart. So Jesus is like, okay, but what about you? What, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? He's not satisfied with just what other people think or say. He's not satisfied with you just reading all the books about what other people think. He wants to know what you think. Well, who do you say? And at this point, Peter, who kind of in the story represents all the disciples, speaks up in a rare moment of clarity. Peter has this rare moment of seeing, of insight. And he says, you are the Messiah. Now, the Messiah means the anointed one. It is the promised one, uh, the, 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 the true king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Christ, the one who, who bears all the hopes of the Jewish people and all the hopes for all people, whether they know it or not. You're the savior. That's what that, that was a very loaded term. The Messiah was like the anointed one, the Christ, the one who's come to set everything right, to establish God's rule on earth. And of course, this is correct. Peter sees the disciple sees. We often, we too, we can see Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. I'm sure there are many people who are at church right now and who are listening who believe the very same thing, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, your hope, your salvation, your teacher, your leader. If I was asking you, like over, obviously, Zoom right now, I'd say, you know, who do you say Jesus is? I would imagine a lot of you would say, well, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. 
And of course, that's right. He is. He's the Lord. Peter sees. Disciples see. We can see. Think about that. Most of us would say the same thing as Peter. You are the Lord. We see Jesus. But the question is, and the question of this text like bears upon us, is do we see him clearly? Did Peter see Jesus clearly? Now, of course, Jesus says right after this, don't tell anyone about who I am. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Because Peter doesn't really see him clearly. If he went around telling everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, he would have it halfway wrong and halfway right. He is the Messiah, but what Peter thinks about what that means is wrong. So Jesus, knowing this, like, don't tell anyone yet. For Peter, what he believed, it meant that that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, was that the Messiah would come and teach people the righteous ways of the Lord. And Jesus obviously did that really well. I mean, Sermon on the Mount. But also, he was there to establish God's dominion on earth by, this is important, defeating his enemies. In other words, the Messiah to Peter was a conqueror, a warrior, a hero, who is going to terminate the oppressive rule of Rome and establish God's rule on earth. And of course, you and I know the rest of the story. We know that actually Jesus did do that as a conqueror, a warrior, to take over the oppressive rule, but not in the way that they thought. See, for Peter, the disciples believed that the Messiah was going to do this through militant force, with a sword and with an army. This kind of Messiah was in their stories in their social commentary, in their cultural milieu. It was was thus in their expectations of Jesus. It's what they wanted from a Messiah. They wanted a warrior king, someone strong, someone who could win, someone who could crush their enemies, someone with a broad, broad shoulders and a puffed up chest. So don't miss this next part and how shocking it was to them that Jesus said that he wasn't that kind of Messiah. Verse 31, right after that, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is absolutely stupefying to the, for the disciples to hear. They believed that the Messiah would rule with royal domination, reestablish and purify the temple and the land from foreigners who wanted to corrupt it and bring back the way of life they had lost so many years before when King David was king. But Jesus won't fit into that expectation or stereotype. And not only that, but he will define his life and mission as a scandalous opposite of that. His life won't be about victory and success. His life is going to be about rejection and suffering. I mean, it's hard to to explain this to you. It's hard to get you and I to understand how different this was from the Jesus they expected or the Messiah they expected or what they expected Jesus to be because he was the Messiah. And it's also hard for us to understand how natural Peter's reaction was. 
You and I are cushioned by 2,000 years of church teaching about a suffering Messiah. But to Peter and the people of that day, it was not so. They have this one little part in Isaiah that talks about a suffering servant, but they never tied that to the Messiah. So they had no, they had no framework for this. They had no framework at all like, wait, you're the Messiah, you're not gonna suffer. That's not what you do. You win, you conquer, you rule over, you crush your enemies. And because Peter sees the world as a battle between good and evil spiritual powers, he believes right here that when Jesus says this, that he's gonna suffer and die, he believes that Jesus is being lied to by Satan. And he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. Look, look at verse 32. Now the word rebuke in verse 32, commentators believe that there's a sense of exorcism in that word from other places this word is used, meaning that Peter is trying to pull Jesus aside and cast out a satanic assault from his mind. Peter thinks that Jesus is weak for a moment to where Satan has entered his mind and he can't go through with his call to be the Messiah. And so Peter pulls him inside and rebukes Satan in his mind. That's what, that's what commentators believe was going on in this text. I mean, picture that. Peter sees this idea of a suffering Messiah that is, is it's so foreign to his thinking and so alien to his expectations that he thinks Jesus is under the influence of Satan. And of course, it's not Jesus who's under the influence of Satan here. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Same word, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And the implication here being this, do you see Satan at work here? Do you see what Satan's actually doing here? Peter isn't like fully manifesting with foam and his head spinning around, but Jesus says that he's still under the influence of Satan. How? How is Peter here under the influence of Satan? How is Satan at work in this text? And the answer is, Satan is at work when we start to see Jesus through our own lens of expectations and demands. When you and I start seeing Jesus through the lens of our expectations and our demands, that is satanic. When Peter does that, when Peter starts to see Jesus through the lens of what he wants and what he thinks and what he expects, that is when Satan is at work. Now the question, obviously to us, is how do we fall into this trap? How do you and I do the same thing? Of seeing, again, remember seeing Jesus but not seeing Jesus? I see men, they look like trees walking around. How can you see Jesus, you're the Messiah, but not really see what that means? That's the whole point of this text. Now, how do we do that? How do we see Jesus? You're the Messiah, you're the Lord, you're the Savior, but not really see what that means. How do we see Jesus, but we see him through the lens of our own thinking? Well, we do that when we make Jesus in our own image. And this is common, I mean, I'm not above this. I do this myself. We all, in some ways, do this, which is what's so challenging about this text. Like, when, we, when Jesus is American, when Jesus is white, when Jesus is pro-military, when Jesus is helping us to protect our borders, I'll just pick a little bit on the NRA here, okay, just for fun. At the 2018 National Rifle Association annual meeting, National Rifle, people that like, like guns and stuff like that, they opened their annual meeting with a prayer breakfast, okay? 
And, and the president of the, uh, of, of the, uh, the NRA was Oliver North, and he opened the prayer meeting by reminding the members of the National Rifle Association that they were, quote, in a fight, in a brutal battle to preserve the liberties that the good Lord presents us with. In the same prayer meeting, Adam LaRoche, a former baseball player, major league baseball player, got up and started pontificating that Jesus was no pacifist, that and that Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword, all while wearing a t-shirt with big white letters on it that says, Jesus loves me and my guns. Okay. Of course, I mean, we, most of our people are in San Francisco. We can probably clearly see, oh my gosh, they've made Jesus. Well, we, everyone does this. It's just, it's just kind of simple right now to pick on. Like, if you, when you think that Jesus was not a pacifist, when he literally was a pacifist, when he was literally laid his life down and didn't pick up a sword, like he literally won the world that way. When we do this, when we make Jesus an American, pro-military, pro-gun, protect our borders, our borders are not places of hospitality, but places to be defended, you have made Jesus in your own image. That's just... And this brings me back to my, to my beloved photo of Billy Graham and Johnny Cash. A, a lot of us in America would like to believe that Jesus is kind of B.A., that he would win Super Bowls, that he would win NBA championships, that he would close deals and protect country. But that kind of thinking is satanic. Jesus is the one who suffers and is rejected. He's the one who loses his life and finds it in the end when he gets back by God. He's the one who gives up everything to gain it all. See, you and I can be sure that we've made Jesus in our own image when it turns out that Jesus hates all the same people we hate and loves all the same people we love. When, when that happens, when we're, I mean, we're in election year, when you think that Jesus is on your election side, and that the enemy is over there, and we have to win the country back from them, and Jesus is on our side. When you do that, you've made Jesus in your own image. He's not on your political side. He's just not, sorry. I don't care what it is that you're trying to defend. He's not on your political side. He's completely other. He's the Lord. It's almost like if you remember at the very beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua is about to go to battle, and he sees the Lord. And commentators believe this is a, uh, actually a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, which is a mind bender. And Joshua says, he doesn't recognize him. He's like, who are you? Are you for us or for the enemy? And Jesus says, no, I'm the Lord. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, I'm not on their side or your side. I'm, I'm on, my, on my side of justice and holiness and righteousness and what I'm doing in the world. What side are you on? Whose side are you on? That's the question. Which I think gets back to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? See, the minor problem with making a Jesus in our own image, the minor problem, the small problem, is that a Jesus that you make up can never challenge you and therefore can never change you. You've made a Jesus in your own image and he can't change you nor challenge you. See, if, you're, if, if, if you haven't had your idea of Jesus challenged in the last five years, you've probably made a Jesus in your own image. If the, your image of Jesus is totally fixed around all of your ideology and all of your thoughts and all of, your, and all of that stuff, and it hasn't changed in like five years, you've probably made Jesus in your own image. 
Now, the major problem, the major problem with making Jesus in our own image is that if you get the wrong view of Jesus' messiahship, that will lead to a wrong view of your discipleship. If you, if you start following this false Jesus, the way that you follow Jesus will be wrong. The, the way that, you, that your discipleship will be oriented in a way that is not about Christianity or Jesus at all. It's about something else entirely. It could be about your, your righteous justice. It could be about your political side. It could be about whatever, but it's not about Jesus. See, the reason why Peter didn't want Jesus to go to, to suffer and die, among other reasons, is that as goes the teacher, so goes the students. If Jesus went to suffer and die, that meant he had to go suffer and die. Meaning if Jesus was going to suffer and die, that meant that the disciples, all the disciples of Jesus had to suffer and die too. And who wants that? No one wants that. We want to win. We want to win elections and seats at the table and power. We want to win at life. And if you think that all Jesus does is win, 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 then you'll think your discipleship to Jesus is all about winning, winning, winning. But if Jesus' identity is really about that of a suffering and then suffering, death, and then glory, it's death and then resurrection, it's suffering and then glory, well, that means our discipleship to Jesus will take on that same shape. It'll be suffering and then glory, death and then resurrection. And that's exactly what we find Jesus bidding his disciples to right after this, where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, we, know, we all know this is happening next. As goes the teacher, so goes the students. Jesus is the teacher. I'm going to go suffer and die. What does that mean? Well, then we have to go suffer and die. And Jesus does that. He says, if you want to, if you want to be my disciple, come follow me. Take up your cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But if whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it, what good is it? If you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul, what can anyone give in exchange for your soul? You and I would be wise as disciples of Jesus to take these words of Jesus and work them into our life plan, which is really hard to do, which is actually really frustrating to do. But that I think that's the invitation here. And that was the invitation to Peter. See, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not telling Peter to go away. He's not saying, Peter, leave me and never come back. You've crossed the line. He doesn't rebuke Peter and tell Peter to get lost. That rebuke was to tell Peter to fall back into discipleship to Jesus, which takes place behind him. You're not leading me, Peter. I'm not following you, you follow me. You have the things of, of man in mind, which is satanic. Repent, get behind me, follow me. And where I'm going is to the cross, to suffer and to die. And I want you to follow me to your own death. Actually, anyone who follows me has to follow me to their own death. Do you see what's going on there? Get behind me, follow me, go my way. Now, there's a couple of implica implications to this that I want to end with. Now, of course, whenever we teach at our church around cruciformity or the way of Jesus, it gets really difficult. I mean, how to work this out in a, in a world where, in a city where it's all about like closing the deal, making your thing, getting, you know, like optimized, all of that stuff that we're all trying to do over and over and over again to win at life. How does this fit into our life plan? Well, there's a couple of things here. 
The first is this. You are free to be weak. You can suffer. You're allowed to suffer. You are free to be weak and to suffer. And being weak and suffering can become a part of your discipleship to Jesus. I believe someone needs to hear that right now, that it's okay to be weak. This is what Jesus' teaching here means. Paul the Apostle would bake this into his theology, his orthodoxy and his orthopraxy, the way he believed about God and the way he believed he responded to God and lived. When he was talking in 2 Corinthians about his life and his hardships, he said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, he's, he's taking this idea of discipleship to Jesus and the fact that Jesus went and laid down his rights and laid down his life and went to the cross and didn't win and didn't triumph the way that we expect him to. And he says this, this inverted logic of the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing as Messiah King on earth is actually the, 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 the grain of the universe. When I'm weak, I'm strong. His grace is sufficient for me. My, my, his power is made perfect in me in my weakness. I'm okay to be weak. I'm allowed to be weak. Because when I'm weak, he's strong and therefore I'm strong. Because our natural inclinations and our natural intuitions, we, we, in our natural intuitions, we, we tell ourselves that Jesus is with us and on our side and present and helping us only when our life is going well. When our life starts to fall apart, that's when we go, where's God? He's left us. He's nowhere near us. But when, 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 we're, when we're crushing it, when we're, when we're doing like, like things are going well in our life, we think God's with us. He's helping us. He's with us. But the, the actually, uh, the majority of the text you'll find in the New Testament actually say the opposite. It's when we're weak that Jesus is with us and able to sympathize with us. Why? Because he himself was weak. Because he himself suffered. He himself was betrayed. You see, this is exactly what Hebrews is about. When Hebrews talks about we don't have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who went through everything we did yet without sin. He went through it all, but never gave in to the test. He never, he never failed the test. He stayed faithful to the end. And he sits with us in our weakness. And because of that, when we're weak, he's strong in us and therefore we're strong. I want to close with the book that we've uh, been reading this summer as a church, uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. <clears throat> In the book, if you're reading it along with us, he says, when the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the, long, when, a, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. This is the invitation, I believe, that God is bringing us into. One where we're allowed to be weak, 
one that challenges our ideology around win-win-win, around uh, the, the, the sort of uh, pull yourself up, you're going to crush it, uh, the sort of God triumphs over his enemies, therefore God is with us and against all our enemies, all of that needs just to die. We need to sit in this place of saying, Jesus, help me see you. Because I, I see you, you're Lord, but I don't know if I know what that means right now. I don't know if I see that clearly. I don't know what that means in my weakness. I don't know what that means when I fail. I don't know what that means. And let, in that point, allow Jesus to come near us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we pray, I pray right now that you would draw near to your church. Those who are weak, those who, if we were uh, at, at church, I'd say, raise your hand if you feel weak right now. If you're so weak that you don't know if you can, you can make it. If, 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 if they're listening right now and that, that your hand right now would shoot up, I'm praying for you. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to them and their weakness. Where they felt like you're far from them, actually it's opposite. It's actually you've never been nearer to them. Rewire the way that we think success goes in life. Rewire the way that we think your presence goes in life. Sometimes we're so, we, 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 we confuse your presence in your favor with uh, winning and success, Lord. Those wires get crossed for us. Would you uncross them and show us the way of Jesus? If anyone is in a, in a place where they're in the heat of battle and they feel like they need to win, I pray that they would take the way of the cross and and allow themselves to be weak right now. I know this is dangerous and as dangerous as this text is, it's, it's dangerous sometimes to, to take the road of weakness, but Lord, I pray that we would take the road of weakness and discipleship to you. And when we're weak, you're strong. Be strong, show your strength in ways that you've never shown them before in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.